Capernaum. He goes in the synagogue. He begins to teach them. In verse 22, they are amazed at his teaching, for his teaching was having with, with authority, not like the scribes. And then he encounters an unclean spirit, a man with unclean spirit. He drives out the unclean spirit. And then the people respond again in verse 27 of chapter 1 of Mark's gospel. And they were amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits and they obey Him. They realize that there was something radical that was happening here and it's not like the system that it has existed for so long for them as a Jewish nation. Something new and profound is taking place. But we find that in all of this, Jesus is going to leave us an example on how to serve the kingdom of God and it is by service. We see the second half of Mark's gospel. It is the servant Jesus and his sacrifice. And this is from Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 16, 8. And this is the, the section we're going to move into next Sunday. But here we find the ruler who serves and sacrifices. Now, just take a journey with me if you want to. If in your minds you know where this is at. John's gospel, chapter 13. When I think about a ruler who serves and sacrifices... I'm always reminded of this passage in John chapter 13, and we'll see this through Mark's gospel as well. But in John chapter 13, there is the, the celebration of the Passover feast. And Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And in John chapter 13, the statement comes in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. He has all authority, all power. Everything has been given into his hands by the Father. He knew that it was, the time was come for him to go to, back to God, to return to God. Verse 4, it says this. So he got up from supper. He laid aside his garments, taking a towel. He girded himself. And then he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he girded himself. I find this as an intriguing response to the fact that all authority and power was given to him by God the Father. And this is what he does. He takes off his clothes, he puts on the apron of a slave, and he gets down and he washes the disciples' feet. This also includes Judas, who we are told in chapter 13 is going to betray him. And Satan has already entered into Judas' heart and has already moved in him to betray Jesus. So he's also going to wash his enemy's feet, the betrayer's feet. Now what I find amazing about this, and going back to Mark's Gospel, but think about this passage, and we will see these truths as we go through Mark's Gospel, but here is someone who has all authority, and what he does is he gets down and serves. And what Jesus does in that moment is not something that anyone else would normally do. In other words, you had a picture of the gentleman walking into this room for the Passover. They walk into this room, and traditionally what they would encounter is a slave waiting at the door. And as they would walk in the door, the slave would get down on their hands and knees, and they would wash their feet. Now, they don't wear shoes like we wear shoes. They wore sandals everywhere they walked. The roads were mostly made of dirt. 
So if they're walking around all day with sandals on, they're sweating in the heat and everything else, and all of this dust is sticking to their feet. Now they walk in, and they're going to sit down. And when they would sit down for a meal, they didn't just sit on the floor. They would actually lay down, and so the food would be there. So sometimes you'd have the other guy's feet right by your head. So obviously you want some clean feet. So here these guys walk in, and traditionally they would see a slave there who would do this, but no one's there. So they all walk in. They need to sit down and eat. And you'll notice in, in John chapter 13, not one of the men offers to do this. Why? We don't do this kind of thing. This is what slaves do. So to give you a sense of the attitude, John the Baptist, when he saw Christ and was talking about Christ, he proclaimed him. He says, I'm not even worthy, Mark chapter 1, I'm not even worthy to get down as a slave and to unbuckle the sandals on his feet. I'm not even worthy to do that. So this was a demeaning thing. These men did not offer to do this. They're standing around looking around going, who's going to do this? Jesus then comes in and he, who has all authority and power, is going to wash their feet for them. A slave's task. These are manly men. Jesus comes around to Peter and Peter says, Oh, no, 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 you're not washing my feet. You don't do this kind of thing. You're the master. You're rabbi. You're Christ. You're the Messiah. He says, If I don't do this, then you have no part of me, Peter. Peter says, all right, wash my hands and my head then, right? Jesus says, no. But what he was doing there, and later he will go on and tell him, I am setting an example for you. This is how you minister in my kingdom. You want to be great? You become a slave to all. So this is the layout of Mark's gospel. It is focusing on the fact that Jesus Christ, who has all authority, all power, the Messiah, the King, has come to serve, and he calls us to follow in his footsteps. And he sets the example for us. So I take you to the first couple of verses of Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Jesus the servant is introduced. And Ralph Martin makes this comment. It's interesting because when we pick up a modern book, we, we look for the title page because this is the page that grasps our attention, it, it piques our interest, it tells us what the book is all about. And, and when you go into a bookstore, this is what you look for. You look for the cover or on the spine you see a title, something that's going to grab you, something that's going to draw you in. Well, in books in those days, they didn't have that. They didn't have a cover page. They didn't have anything like that. And usually it was the first sentence or the first paragraph. But this is what was going to draw you in. So when we come to Mark's gospel, this is what he does. Verse 1, this is his table of contents. This is his title page. He is going to tell us in verse 1 everything that we're going to find in this gospel. Prepares us for what we are going to see as we walk through it. And as you read through Mark's gospel, you will find that there are elements in when Jesus tells people, don't, don't tell anyone what happened here. In other words, there's aspects to Jesus that were kept sort of hush-hush, if you will, until the right time for them to be manifested. But Mark begins with this introduction in chapter 1, verse 1. And I was reminded of the words of a Scottish preacher, Alexander White. He said, life is made up of new beginnings. And this is what Mark introduces us to. He starts off in verse 1 with the beginning. This is the RK. And it's interesting because as you would read this, immediately your mind is taken to the book of Genesis because this is exactly how Genesis begins. In the beginning, Barashith. 
So just as Genesis 1-1 begins, so Mark chapter 1, right, begins this way, the beginning. This tells us several things. And first, it tells us that the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, presents a new beginning to us. In other words, there is something new and world impacting that is going to happen here. He declares this in verse 15, but it's already indicated for us in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 of this prophecy that is recorded for us, the introduction to John the Baptist's ministry. The other thing that this word beginning helps us to understand is the fact that there is more that is to come. There's something beyond this. In other words, this is just the start as Mark lays out these truths for us. And the day of Pentecost reveals, us to, reveals to us that there is something more that is to come. This was a part of John's prophecy. As he talks about the ministry of, of Jesus Christ when he comes in verse 8 of Mark chapter 1. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There is something more that is going to come as a result of this. That that promised Holy Spirit of the Old Testament is going to be bestowed upon you. And enable you to proclaim the good news of the coming of the kingdom to the rest of the world. Something new and radical is happening here. And Mark records it with such brevity, but at the same time, the way that he words everything, the way that he draws us in, he moves us right into the impact of what is taking place. For these men that Jesus is going to call, their life is going to be radically different. When I was seven years old and the Lord called me into salvation, my life became radically different. From that moment on, I began inviting all my friends to come to church. Wednesday nights, my dad had a camper truck and we would pack all the kids from the neighborhood into the back of that truck and haul them off to Wednesday night Awana. Sunday morning Sunday school I was bringing all my friends to church why because something radically new happened in my life I was regenerated I was given new life in Christ there is this dynamic spiritual union that that I have with now Christ the Messiah the Son of God something new has happened to me and I'm constantly being transformed there is new days every day for us there are new things to learn about God when I was seven that was just the beginning 55 years later, there's a new day every day of something that I'm learning from God. A new level that He's taking me into in a relationship with Him. Something more profound and staggering that I'm learning about Almighty God when I come to His Word. So John or Mark leads us to the truth of the Gospel. He says, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting as he hints on this, and I just to... Uh, to quote from someone a lot smarter than I am in reference to the, the word, the gospel, sometimes we sort of blow past this word. It's interesting is that Mark is the only gospel writer that uses the word gospel with great frequency. And when I say that, he uses it only eight times in his gospel. That's four times more than Matthew. Matthew only uses the word gospel four times in his gospel. Staggering, right? I mean, that's just like, it's a gospel. But understand, these books didn't have the title Gospels until much later in the church. So Mark is actually the first one to use this in a preface. He uses it eight times. The only book in the New Testament that uses the word gospel more than Mark's gospel, that is the book of Romans. Nine times it's used in Romans. Luke never uses the word gospel. John never uses the word gospel. 
So what Mark is doing for us is he is introducing us to a word that should be a radically impactful word. And Dr. Paul S. Reese makes a statement in regards to the word gospel. In Greek, it's euangelium. He says it indicates the gospel is neither a discussion nor a debate. In other words, it's an announcement. It's a proclamation. And this is why the word is used then in chapter 1, verse 14, even of Jesus' ministry. Notice in chapter 1, verse 14, that he went around preaching the gospel of God. Keruson. It's from Kerux. It is to proclaim. It is to herald. It is to announce that something is here. For John the Baptist, he was preaching. He was heralding the fact that the king was here. Jesus then comes and he is announcing the kingdom is at hand. Why? Because the king is here. The king is here. So this is how Mark brings us into this encounter, but he wants us to understand that as he begins his gospel, this is a royal pronouncement of proclaiming the arrival of the king and also of the kingdom. Now it's subtle how Mark does this in some ways through the rest of his gospel, but this prepares us for chapter 11, the triumphal entry, and we'll come to that next Sunday. So the gospel can be referred to and has been as the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, of Jesus the Messiah. And if you look at Mark's gospel, it's interesting. Just look at, and I give you the references there, of all the different times that Mark uses the word gospel in his gospel narrative. And one of the places he uses is in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. And the surrounding context is important because this is Jesus' journey, his travel narrative, if you will. And Mark places this in the framework of that. And this is preparation, chapter 8, verse 31 through 1052. This prepares us for the triumphal entry in chapter 11. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus is going to move from Caesarea Philippi, who's in the north, where he was confessed as being the Messiah in chapter 8, verse 29. He is now going to head towards Jerusalem in the south, and he is going to fulfill his messianic mission. But first, Peter declares him to be the Christ. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus now moves towards Jerusalem because it's time for him to fulfill his messianic mission. He must die on the cross. And in this section, in Mark's gospel, over and over, we will see the passion statements being made. But Mark is preparing us for this as he indicates the importance of the gospel to his narrative. Not only that, but if you look with me at chapter 1, verse 1, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is going to give us some very clear clues as to who he is writing about. Who is the main subject of all of this? And it's interesting that when you read through Mark's gospel, you will find that the, the word most frequently used that he references Jesus Christ as is Jesus 80 times in his gospel, which means Yahweh saves. But not only that, but he refers to him, if you notice with me, in chapter 1, verse 1, that he is the Messiah. He is Christu. He is the Christ. Sometimes we don't realize this because oftentimes Christ is sort of taken as a part of Jesus' official name, but actually it was a title that was given to him. But it became so commonly used and even in our vocabulary, when we refer to him, rarely do we just merely call him Jesus. He's Jesus Christ, our, our Lord Jesus Christ. But we sort of get used to it that way and forget the significance of the word. Christu meant Messiah. It is related to the Hebrew word for Messiah, the anointed one. Christu is from Krito, and it means to anoint someone. 
So Mark introduces us to the one who is going to be the deliverer, God's agent who is promised in the Old Testament and all the prophecies that are given. He is the anointed one. He is the one who's going to come and fulfill all these prophecies. And just so you know, there are 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. 300. All fulfilled in one. Jesus Christ. So no doubt this is going to be important as you read through Mark's gospel. But when we understand when he refers to the fact that he is anointed one in the Old Testament, priests and prophets and kings were ones who were anointed. And it's interesting that if you look through Mark's gospel, he's going to focus on the fact that Jesus is a prophet, but more he is going to focus on the fact that he is the king. Especially in chapter 15 where he appears before Pilate. This great dialogue that goes on between them, but the affirmation of the fact that He is the King of Israel. He is the King of the Jews. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He is anointed to do one of the greatest tasks in all of times. And in chapter 1, this is where Mark introduces us to the fact that He was anointed for this job when the Holy Spirit came upon Him. Because anyone who served in these roles, prophet, priest, and king, in the Old Testament, also had the power of the Holy Spirit in them to perform the ministry that God set them aside to do. And Jesus Christ as fully man is no different. So when John introduces us to this, and Mark does in chapter 1, verses 9 and following, the baptism of Jesus Christ is very important. And he lays it out for us, and in verse 10 of chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, immediately coming out of the water, after Jesus had been baptized by John, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, and here's the divine declaration, You are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. Immediately then the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness where he was going to be tempted by Satan. Immediately the conflict started. He had to encounter the enemy, but he encounters the enemy in the power of the Spirit. He is not only the Messiah, he is the Son of God, Mark says in chapter 1, verse 1. This conveys more to the Jewish mind than to ours, but we need to understand the fact that this is a, a clear assertion to the fact that he is deity. In other words, Mark is helping us understand that Jesus was himself very God and equal with God. Therefore, he is the bringer of God's salvation. He is not only the one who receives the Spirit, he is going to be the one who gives the Holy Spirit. See, something radically new is happening here. It's not an external kingdom like everyone was expecting. That's going to come later. There is a physical manifestation of the kingdom of God when Jesus Christ returns. But this is talking about the spiritual dominion of which God rules over our hearts. This is something about the kingdom the nation of Israel didn't understand yet, but they were going to through these mere fishermen. Think about how radical that is. I'm staggered by the fact that here Christ is going to do something that's going to impact the world, all the tribes, all the tongues, all the nations, to the ends of the earth. This proclamation is going to go out and God is going to establish his kingdom in the hearts of men. And then finally it's going to be consummated when Christ returns. But he's going to start all of this with a group of fishermen, not rabbis. <laughs> These are ordinary Joes. These are manly men. These are guys who do back-breaking, muscle-aching kind of work. It's like God saying, I'm going to do a radical work, and I'm not going to go to seminary to find seminary grads to help me do this. I'm going to go out and find some lumberjacks. 
And they're going to declare the message of the kingdom to the world. He wants us to understand when he talks about the gospel, though, when we talk about proclaiming the gospel to the world, it's not just about a set of beliefs. It's a person. We're not trying to just get people to sign on intellectually and mentally to sort of give some mental assent to some dogmas that we lay out for them. What we're calling them to do is to enter into a relationship with a being, the Son of God. And it's in this union that new life comes and new beginnings come. And you can face every day with the realization that there is something new for you every day in life. That no matter how many times you fail, you can be washed anew and be cleansed. Isn't that amazing? I was talking to my son the other night and he said, Dad, you know, you just turned 55. You've walked with the Lord for so many years. What is the thing that, that just constantly staggers you? What is the thing that, that really moves you? And I said, lately it has so moved me the fact that I can confess my sins. And he will forgive me and cleanse me of those sins. And it is though I never did them at all. How is that? But that's this. It's the radicalness of what was coming. How could we not be joyous? How could an Easter not be a celebration for us, even if the early church didn't do it? But how could it not be? But here's the question. How can not every day be a celebration for us, right? Is not every day a reality of the resurrection in our life? This new life in Christ, this new beginning that we have? And this is so amazing that he has to send a forerunner to declare it. And so in chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, we have this announcement that there is a coming of a new epic. He gives the prophecy, prophecy in chapter 1, verse 2. It stands written. In other words, this is the authoritative affirmation. This is the word of God, the declarative word of God. This is coming to fulfillment. Therefore, whatever John does and whatever Jesus does is by divine providence. But God said this was going to happen, and now it's being fulfilled. There is a new epic here. And Mark reveals this to us that this wasn't just merely an event by the term that he uses about John the Baptist and his coming on the scene, verse 4. Now John the Baptist, he appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And everyone was coming out to him to be baptized in the Jordan, confessing their sins. It's interesting the word that Mark uses here that he appeared. It's the word for coming into existence. In other words, Mark is telling us that he appeared on the stage of world history. He is the last Old Testament prophet. There is something new in God's dealings with mankind. And there is a fulfillment of this prophecy coming in John the Baptist that he is going to be the first spoken messenger of this gospel message. <laughs> and this is the same message we take to the world. We are voices merely crying, saying, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths I love this about John the Baptist because the religious leaders come out and question him and they ask him, you know, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah, right? And all these things. And every time they ask him, he just turns off to the side and says, no, this is the one here. 
He would never allow the spotlight to fall on him. It was always on Christ. And I'm always challenged by that because the new life that I have isn't because of something in me. It's because of him. Therefore, spotlight needs to fall on him all the time. And when people recognize that new life in us, we need to tell them where we found that new life. His coming was also preparatory because he was going to be the forerunner of the coming king. The baptism then comes in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And what's interesting to me about this baptism, verses 9 through 11 is, is the baptism part. Then he goes off in verse 12. He's driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And this is a strong word that he uses in verse 12. He was impelled. He was driven out. Is this word impel is used in the Gospels for Jesus when he casts out evil spirits or unclean spirits. The Holy Spirit casts him out into the wilderness. Now we know in Luke's gospel that the Holy Spirit led him during that whole entire time. But Mark uses only 53 words in the original text to describe this. But this was a powerful moment. Martin Luther understood how powerful this passage was in these few verses. And he titled his message, Highest Things. He said, the highest preacher is God. The highest pulpit, the heavens. The highest sermon, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. One of the greatest messages ever recorded for us, and Mark does it in 53 words. You would think more, but the simplicity of it, because of the grandeur of it. We find that he was divinely empowered, and he was given this divine declaration, this is who he is. Now, this is important for us to understand this truth. He was not only the receiver of the Holy Spirit, but the giver of the Holy Spirit, but the only way that he could fulfill his task as Messiah, as fully man, was in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have to understand this because so often we so deify Christ, we forget his humanity. He was fully man. Thus he needed the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, he was going to do ministry. I take you to Luke's gospel. Let me show you this. In Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 records for us the, the temptation of Christ. Mark does the same thing, but he just, because of his brevity, he just gives us a sh short statement in regards to it. He doesn't elaborate on it, but Luke gives us this insight into what's happening. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, right? So this is after the baptism. Mark, or Luke puts it in his gospel in chapter 3, verses 20 and 20, 21 and 22. Jesus is baptized, the Spirit comes down. So now in chapter 4, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and he was led around by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness. And for 40 days he was being tempted by the devil. So all during this time, Jesus is being led by the Holy Spirit. All right? So Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And then you look at Luke's recounting of this in chapter 4, that every time that, the, that Satan attempted to tempt Christ... Christ responded, one, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and two, by the Word of God. Every time that Satan tried to tempt him, he used the Word of God. And every single quotation from Christ in this section was from the book of Deuteronomy. Which tells you that likely that's probably where his quiet times were, right? 
is in the book of Deuteronomy. Every time he quotes from Deuteronomy. But notice how Luke records this for us. So Jesus walks into this full of the Holy Spirit. He's led around by the Holy Spirit during this time. And then notice what happens. He resists the devil. And in chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Now notice verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. He walked in in the power of the Holy Spirit. He walked out in the power of the Holy Spirit. How did he face his temptation? In the power of the Spirit by the Word of God. Object lesson for us. How do we face temptation in our life? By the power of the Spirit through the Word of God. And we can be just as victorious as Christ was in the time of temptation. This is why for Mark, this is important, although it's only 53 words, this is vitally important for us to understand. And in this first chapter, he helps us to understand not only is he the one who receives the Spirit, he is also going to be the one who gives the Spirit. Because if we're going to carry on the kingdom ministry, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And it's he who imparts that new life to us in Christ. It's he who binds us together. We're not bound by flesh and blood. We're bound by the Spirit of God. Something far deeper, far more profound. There is a domesticity of soul that we have because of the Spirit of God, the new light that He imparts to each one of us. This is what binds us together. This is what makes us one. This is also what infuriates me when we have so much division in the church. So this encounter is important for us to understand this baptism because he needed to carry out this ministry and mission and therefore he was going to be empowered. And this is no surprise to us then when after the triumphal entry, he cleanses out the temple and the religious leaders come to him after he cleanses the temple and they say to him, by what authority do you do this? And in chapter 11, when they ask this, Jesus is going to take them all the way back to his baptism. You want to know where my authority comes? Let's go back to the baptism. Isn't that amazing? So this is to prepare us for chapter 11, the triumphal entry. Then comes the temptation, and he must face the ultimate enemy of God the Father. Therefore, he is impelled, and this helps us to understand. Mark so brilliantly helps us to see that there is something spiritual happening here. As the declaration of the kingdom of God is at hand, there is a battle going on. But Jesus is going to give us victory in this. This will prepare us for chapter 11 next week and we will come back and look at the triumphal entry and all that Christ does. But this is glorious, is it not? This is good news. There is new beginning for anyone who enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate on Easter. May God help us to understand these truths.